this is the Les Grobstein and David Schuster Express on 1252 Sports Chicago. All aboard! Welcome into the latest edition of the Grabstein Schuster Express. It's brought to you by the famous Nick and Ivy's Brewery in Lockport. Much more from our sponsor a little bit later in this podcast. I am David Schuster, and I'm joined by my longtime friend, Les Grabstein, host of Score Overnights on the Score WSCR 670 AM. Lots to talk about as always, Les. Yeah, and we got some uh, crappy teams right now to talk about, don't we? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, for as long as you and I have been covering sports in Chicago, I think more often than not, the teams have been crappy. But, you know, I've covered 12 championships here in Chicago. You have done at least that many, maybe more, because, you know, you were with the Sting when they won another title. So I think you're one up on me, to be honest with you. You won two there. Oh, you won two? Okay, so you're two up on me. Although I was at uh, the airport when the Sting came back from winning up in Toronto, one of those two championships. Yeah, they, they defeated the New York Cosmos, and we it was a commercial flight, but when we were on the last approach to come into O'Hare, we were told that there was a mob at O'Hare, and it was unbelievable, which which it was. And uh, the game was that past uh, evening, but before we, we didn't get a flight home till the evening, and the funny thing is um, I knew there was a CFL game between Toronto and Calgary, the Calgary Stampeders and the Toronto Argonauts. And so I called the PR director of the Argos and I knew I was on my way to the airport and they credentialed me and I decided to finally see a CFL game for the only time in my life. So that was kind of cool too. You know, it's interesting, Les, whenever we have conversations, so many memories pop up uh, over all the years that you and I have covered sports here in Chicago. And we have our walk down memory lane segment, which we'll do at the end of this, uh, this podcast or near the end of the podcast. But Things just constantly pop up in my head when we do this. And I do remember when the Sting came back from winning that championship, I was at the airport and there was a big brass band and all that kind of stuff. But there was another time that we were at the airport. It's when the Bulls were courting some of the free agents and Jerry Krause had Benny the Bull and he had the uh, the whole band and people the were streamers. Uh, the Lovables were there, and and we sort of clogged up the airport. It was it was really comical, and I don't re- I think it was Tracy McGrady, if I remember. It was Team A, and that whole thing was a waste of time. Oh, he had already said he wanted to play for Doc Rivers in Orlando, which is by the way who he signed with shortly thereafter. There's no reason that the Bulls should have even wasted time going out to the airport. But uh, Jerry Krause had said. And again, rest his soul. You and I both got along great with him. Jerry Krause had said at that point um, he couldn't wait to say, say get a chance to rebuild the team after Jordan and Pippen were done. By the way, speaking of Pippen, Pippen our condolences on the loss of his son the other day. Absolutely. That's his firstborn son, uh, 33 years old. And, and yes, the rest in peace and condolences to Scotty. Um, you know, and I got numerous uh, uh, memories with Jerry Krause. And, son, and yeah. I'm, 
you know, as we go on doing the, uh, these numerous podcasts, they'll all pop up periodically. But let's start with talk, talking less today about the Cubs. And when last we spoke, they weren't hitting, but rather they were getting hit by pitches. In fact, one of the Atlanta Braves starting pitchers hit four guys in one game. I don't think any of them were intentional because three of them were with curveballs, and I don't think they hit anybody intentional with a curveball. Then the Cubs break out on this past Saturday night. We're recording this on Tuesday morning. They score 13 runs, and you think, oh, my God, you know the Cubs are finally breaking out. And then the next night their pitching staff breaks down and they give up 13 to the Braves. So, I mean, the Cubs are definitely a schizophrenic team at this point. It was the exact same score on Sunday as it was on Saturday. It just it was a reverse. The uh, the visiting team won the game on Sunday. The, uh, the the game was a disgrace. It was pathetic. And then uh, what happened to a guy who's been a very good pitcher and a good guy with the Cubs, Kyle Hendricks, four home runs in the first inning, four of them. That just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen. You know, it's funny because they had 13 runs in back-to-back games. And there's so many ways of betting on sports and baseball games specifically. But when I was growing up and as a young adult and and even past being a young adult, one of the ways people bet they had the 13 run pool, which is probably foreign to a lot of people, you know, and that's if, you know, each week you have a different team. It could be the Cubs one week, it could be the White Sox, it could be the Reds, the Padres, what have you. And if your team that week scored 13 runs, you won the, you know, whatever was in the pool. And, you know, obviously if no team won that week, it carries over. So, you know, 13 runs is a rather unusual number to to score in baseball. But ironically, in back-to-back games, somebody would have won those pools. Yeah, but whoever had the Braves on Sunday probably won little because the whole thing got reloaded. That's true. That's true. Or basically they just split the pot for the week. That's how it would have worked back in the day. But all right, let's talk further about the Cubs. You know, it just came out the other day. Javi Baez, apparently, and, and this is no surprise. I mean, the Cubs did offer some deals to some of their players. And Javi Baez was offered a, a multi-year deal between 170 and $180 million. I don't know if that was for six years or seven years or eight years. That part didn't really come out. Did he make a mistake less in turning down that money? Well, to you and me, it's a mistake because we would take that money in a heartbeat without even needing an agent. But ball players have different ways of looking at it than you and I do. Um, when they have a chance to make uh, a million and change, that's pocket money to them. They don't care. They don't want anything like that. I mean, Anthony Rizzo, who, to the best of our knowledge, is as a, is a, is great a guy. Is there? He's a really nice guy, a great defense. He was not happy with what they had offered. And that's still, and then we know that Chris Bryant, he's got one of the toughest agents to deal with, and uh, Scott Boris. And you know, every player wants to be represented by Scott Boris. The the fans can't stand him. The owners can't stand him. The players they want him in the worst way. All right, but again, Baez was offered probably it was probably an annual twenty to twenty five million dollars a year. Now this offer supposedly was before the truncated abbreviated season last year. Um, and then he had sort of, well, I can almost throw away last year, but he didn't do very well in the, in the abbreviated season. And early on, he's not exactly, you know, knocking down the fences either. So the question remains, did he make a mistake? Because um, is he going to get that same offer either from the Cubs or from other teams? There's a lot of free agent shortstops that are going to be on the market after this season. And Baez is only going to be one of many of those. So again, did he make a mistake? He may have, especially since this year so far, he leads the world in striking out. 
And I think he's, as we speak, he has only drawn one base on balls. And you know what? He's he, a wild swinger. He's always going, and he just misses pitches. If it's in the zone and the pitcher makes a mistake, Baez can hit one to the next county. But he strikes out way more times. Now, between Baez, Bryant, Rizzo, Contreras, who is off to a really good start, and he's tearing the cover off the ball right now. Uh, these guys are all going to get some. How many of them will the Cubs keep? Is there a chance they're going to keep all four? I doubt it. No, they, they will not keep all four. I think there's a better chance of them keeping none of them than keeping all four. The likelihood is that one or two of the players remain, uh, whether it's Contreras or Baez. Or, or I don't see Chris Bryant remaining a Cubs. I think there's just too much bad blood from the past, number one. And I just think, you know, his – his prowess, if you will, has gone down over the last couple of years. But time will tell. You know, it's really interesting, Les, because starting tonight at Wrigley Field, again, we're recording this on Tuesday morning, it's the Cubs and the Mets. <laughs> and I brought up this when we were doing a, a live broadcast uh, this past uh, weekend over at Nick and Ivy's with, with Mike and, and Angelo and Fred Hubner. That was the series way back when, I'm terrible on years, you'll remember, when both you, me, and Bruce Levine all got kicked out of the Mets clubhouse one game after another after another. I wasn't kicked out of there, but I had uh, uh, the, the PR director, uh, uh, Mr. Horowitz, came up to me in the clubhouse the next day. Actually, it was in the press box and said, you better hope the Cubs win because you're not getting into our clubhouse if we do win. After that... Uh, Mr. Horowitz and, and I became pretty good friends. And to this day, we, you know, I guess he's retired now, but he and I get along great. But yes, uh, Keith Hernandez, he basically was ripping you a new one, as we all know. And uh, Bruce, he was telling a guy that he was and still is, I guess, good friends with Ed Lynch, the then uh, pitcher for the Mets, who became the Cubs general manager. And he kept uh, yelling, uh, he says, without your job, I don't have a job. And Lynch is going, what? What? And so it just went back and forth and back and forth. Um, again, uh, Jay Horowitz and I, we're okay now. I know Bruce and Jay are too. You and uh, Keith Hernandez are not okay now, not by a long shot. Yeah, he was one of the biggest a-holes I've ever dealt with. And, and Jay Horowitz, I was not a fan of going forward after that. Um, and it was really interesting because I did get an apology. I mean, I'll tell the story another time, but you know, Keith Hernandez and I got into a verbal spat, although I didn't say anything. And I did get it after I got kicked out of the uh, the Mets clubhouse, escorted by Jay Horowitz and the security people at Wrigley Field. Um, I, I did get an apology from Bill White, the National League president, um, that the, you know the Mets were wrong in doing what they did. But that's another story for another day. All right, let's turn to the White Sox. And uh, yeah, the White Sox are basically treading water at this point. I think they're a game under 500 as we speak right now. But the big highlight this past week was Carlos Rodon, who came this close, Les, to throwing that perfect game. And 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 I don't blame the batter. The pitch was in the dirt, and it hit him in the shoe top. And listen, in a no-hitter or a perfect game situation, you do anything you can to get on base. So I don't have any problem with what the, uh, I think it was Ramirez who got on base, but Carlos Rodon with the no hitter. So I was starting to think already in advance of this podcast, how many no hitters or perfect games have you seen? Cause I've seen quite a few. The first one I saw was in 1969. I was 17 years old. I was just a fan. Kenny Holtzman threw a no hitter 
against the Braves. And Henry Aaron hit one that looked like it was going across Waveland Avenue, but the wind was blowing in that day. If the wind was blowing the other direction, that ball was way out of Wrigley Field. But Aaron clocked it, and Billy Williams stayed with the ball, went to the curve in the wall in left field, and he made a leaping catch at that point. So then things continued. There were two walks issued by Holtzman in that game, both to Bob Didier, the catcher for the Atlanta Braves, who was not even their starting catcher. But as it turned out, uh, who comes to bat with two outs, nobody on in the ninth inning? Hank Aaron again. And Ken Holtzman already told Danny Breeden, who was the backup catcher, because uh, they had an injury. He told us, he says, I'm throwing nothing but fastballs. Don't even throw me any uh, any kind of uh, signs or anything like that. I'm, I'm throwing fastballs. If he hits it, he hits it. Aaron kept pitch after pitch after pitch. And finally hit a ground ball to Glenn Beckert. And Glenn Beckert, who had sure hands on obviously kind of hobbled it, but he was able to recover and throw him out at first base easily. And uh, they got the no hitter and the place went crazy. And I remember the headline in the paper thing. Well, the next day, Fergie Jenkins got lit up by the Braves. And the week after that, uh, Dick Selma, uh, the game after that, lit, got lit up as well. Then they played okay for a while. Then we know around Labor Day is when uh, the Cubs went into the tailspin. And we know what ended up happening. They had that tremendously bad stretch against the Mets. And they had that uh, game at Shea where some fan threw a black cat out on the field. They got a picture of it. And at the new city field where the Mets play now, they have a picture on one of the tiles there right outside the ballpark that shows Santo standing there and the black cat. Well, if you talk to Ron Santo about that when he was still alive, uh, I guarantee you he, he hated New York. He hated the Mets. He hated their fans. He hated everything about New York City. And after that incident that happened when he was still pretty much in his prime, uh, he, from that point on, he despised the New York Mets and the city of New York. You know, as, as I've told our viewers and listeners, you know, we're going to do a special walk down memory lane segment at the end of the at the or towards the end of this podcast. But as we go on, we constantly go back in time with a lot of our memories. And that you know, two more just popped into my head. Yeah, Ronnie Santo, I mean, you and I both knew him very well. And we knew him even more outside like a lot of the fans did. I mean, I, I worked with Ron Santo, as did you. And, and we got to know him and, and learned a lot of things. Ron, Ronnie, on top of so many other experiences in his life, he was a president of an oil company for a while. People don't know that about Ron Santo. And, and he also there. was in charge of the Pro's Pizza. It was called Ron Santo's Pro's Pizza. He was in charge of that, too. Yeah, and you know he's very entrepreneurial. Like I said, uh, uh, president of an oil company. I never would have known that unless he told me that. He also had a restaurant. I believe it was in Arlington Heights. Less, correct me if I'm wrong. You are right. Yeah. So I mean, R Ronnie was a really interesting guy. And then something else just popped into my head today. Unfortunately, is the six-year anniversary of the passing of a really good friend of ours and one of the all-time fan favorites, Doug Buffon, passed away six years uh, today, very unexpectedly. And, and Doug was just a sweetheart of a person, as big as and menacing as he might have been to most people. He was such a teddy bear. But you don't get him angry because if you did, you could incur some real wrath from that guy. He and Doug, uh, he and Ed Obradovich, there were a couple of uh, times that they went on the air and they argued about different things, and they weren't putting on a show. It was legitimate. By the way, speaking of Ron and uh, also of Doug Buffon. I got a great picture of Kathy with both of them 
And I got another one. And this is the funny thing, too. One day we were at spring training and we were getting ready to fly home. We were at uh, Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix and we were just getting ready to jump on. And all of a sudden, here, here comes uh, uh, the MVP of the Super Bowl. And all of a sudden, he, he's tapping me on the shoulder and he's, he's talking to Kathy, who he'd never met before. And he says, don't talk to him. And Kathy says, who is that? I go, well, um, he was the Super Bowl MVP. She goes, oh, I got to get a picture with him. And we got a picture of Kathy with all three that you have mentioned here. Yeah. All three and that included uh, Doug Buffon and that included Ron Santo. They're all on Grobber.com. I didn't care about getting a picture with me with them, which I have. But uh, putting Kathy on there, that was a big thrill for her and a bigger thrill for me. Well, you know, with Mike's help, you know, maybe not today, but going forward, especially when we're going to start doing these uh, podcasts live, and that'll be starting this upcoming Sunday night, um, we'll start sharing some of those pictures that you have from Grobber.net. Um, yeah, that, you know, the, colonel, gonna... the, colonel, the colonel was a great guy, too. And uh, we know how dominant he was in Super Bowl Twenty. I still think Jim McMahon should have been the MVP of that Super Bowl, but the, the media didn't like him, and they weren't going to vote for an offensive player. So they voted for Richard and the Colonel was fantastic in that game, too. All right. Well, speaking of fantastic, Carlos Rodano is fantastic. Kudos to him. And he'll be a big part of this White Sox staff, I think, for the rest of the season. And they need him. Dylan Cease has already been hurt. Uh, Lance Lynn, who's pitched you know, really well early on in the season, he's now on the injured list. The White Sox have a lot of pitching, but as they always say, bless, you never have enough pitching. And Carlos Rodon was really wonderful in that game. Um, coming back from not one but two major surgeries. But it also made me think, because I've covered a lot of no-hitters also, and the very first one I covered as a professional was Jack Morris at the old Comiskey Park. Yeah, and we were we were both in there together that day. Yeah, it was a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I forget. Saturday. Saturday. The, the really unique thing, it was a really cold day, it was in April, but the really unique thing, and I don't know if you remember this, Les, it's the only time that I can recall – they brought Jack Morris up into the press box to yeah, talk to us. I mean, to, to this day, I don't recall ever an athlete coming up to talk to us in our environment as opposed to, well, nowadays everything is unfortunately that stupid, stupid four-letter word, Zoom. But, you know, most of the, you know, all the time we would go down into the clubhouse or on the field, what have you. But Jack Morris came up to the press box, and I will never forget. And we sat around and we talked to him. Like, you know, we're doing right now, not Zoom, but, you know, firsthand about his no-hitter. That I'll never forget that. And that was a Tiger team. That was in 84 when they won the whole thing. They should have played the Cubs in the World Series. Didn't happen. They ended up playing the Padres, beat them four games to one. But as I'm sure you recall, didn't they get off to like a 30-5 and five start that year? I think it was 40 and five. You know, we can check that, but it was something so ridiculous that they just blitzed the whole field right from the word go. No, well, the American League, they did play Kansas City in the ALCS, and some people thought the Royals actually had a shot. Uh, no, they didn't. That was a sweep. The Cubs were playing the Padres, and we know what ended up happening there. No point bringing that up again. Yeah, unfortunately so. All right, but again, the White Sox, they're basically treading water right now. You know, they're, they're, they've had a lot of injuries, unfortunately, early on. It's good to see uh, Tim Anderson back in the lineup. He had three hits in yesterday's, uh, or the last game the White Sox played, which was yesterday, I'm sorry. Um, they're treading water. Now, what scared me about yesterday's game, and Lucas Giolito is, is one of the horses on that starting staff, and more often than not, he's on his game. But unfortunately, every now and then, he throws in a clunker 
And he definitely threw in a clunker yesterday. And, that, you know, that's just sort of scary when your ace of your staff gives up six, seven, eight runs, whatever he did in the first inning. You know which team he seems to have had the most problem with? The only faces him at the most twice a year is the Cubs. The Cubs have somehow had his number, but this was not the Cubs. They don't face him until later in the year. Uh, yeah, Lucas had nothing. A bad first inning. But was that any different that uh, what ended up happening to Kyle Hendricks uh, in the uh, game that uh, they had the other day as well? Two really good pitchers. Can we deny that uh, Kyle Hendricks and Lucas Giolito are both terrific Terrific pitchers, both pretty good guys, and they both got lit up this past weekend. I guess, as they say, blood happens, and unfortunately it does. All right, let's talk about the two teams that are in the United Center. We're talking about the Bulls and the Blackhawks. Yeah. Still, still no fans in attendance. Uh, the Bulls are one of only three teams in the NBA who are who have not allowed fans in. The Blackhawks are the only team, I think, in hockey that has not allowed fans into their building for home games. And both these teams are sort of on a parallel path right now. They might be in the playoffs. They might not be in the playoffs. It's going to come down to, probably to the final games of the season for potentially either team making it or not making it. Well, not only that, I mean uh... – you're talking about uh, the government of the city of Chicago, and I'm not criticizing them because they're trying to protect the fans' health and everything else. But Mayor Lightfoot and also uh, Governor Pritzker uh, of the state of Illinois, uh, they're both uh, people that have to be cleared before they can start allowing fans in. And as we know, the Bears, they had eight home games last year. They didn't have any preseason games at all eight of their games. You were there just as I was. There was nobody there. Well, we have the, I, I, in the next room here from where I'm talking to you now, I've got some stat sheets and every one of them says attendance zero. And there was nobody allowed in there. And there weren't even fans outside walking around the ballpark. So around uh, Soldier Field. So with regard to that, and we also were at the Northwestern games in Evanston and people weren't there either. Yeah. Well, and, and the beauty of not having people there was we can get in and out real quickly. Now, I prefer having fans back and I prefer just going back in time and just having this pandemic completely wiped out and, and getting back to where we were, you know, like, what is it now, 18 months ago or whatever it is. But I will say the one advantage is you can get in and out with no traffic. One no, doubt. no doubt. When, we, when the games would be over and uh, whether it was a night game, whether it was a Monday night or Thursday night or whatever, or a game on a Sunday afternoon. You're right. We're out of there, and there weren't even traffic jams on the Kennedy or the Dan Ryan or the anything like that, even the Eisenhower Expressways, and we were able to just get – you were able to get up uh, north, far north where you live, and you probably are able to get there in record time too, I would bet. Yeah, yeah. I, again, that's the one advantage, but I greatly prefer to go back in time and, and not have this pandemic ever happen. Oh, I would too. I'm with you. I'm with you there. We Look, I don't want the fan uh, – my sister – is a season ticket holder with her husband. And that's a season ticket that I used to own until they moved out of Wrigley Field into uh, Soldier Field. And I had it turned over. Betty Swanson, the former ticket manager of the Bears, uh, she set it up so I was able to convert my one single ticket into two tickets for her. And she's had it ever since then and still has it now. But uh, they got credit for the uh, season tickets for this year. They offered them a refund, although they recommended that they just get credit and my sister did decide to keep hers and I know a lot of fans out there they, they put their credit toward it so they didn't have to pay even if they raised the prices they didn't have to pay that much towards season tickets for this year 
All right, I'm going to hold off talking about the last Chicago team of consequence. That's the Bears, because the next thing on, on the Bears docket is the draft, which is coming up the 29th of this month. So on our next broadcast coming up on Sunday night, which, again, will be live, we will talk extensively about the Bears and the draft over all the years. And high, uh, Lord knows, Les, you've been probably to more Bears drafts than almost anybody alive. Um, so we'll talk about that coming up. Before we go on, though, I want to take a break right now and give some kudos to our sponsor. Again, the Grobstein Schuster Express. It's brought to you by the famous Nick and Ivy's Brewery in Lockport, where they uh, have their own wonderful beer that they brew. They're located at 1026 South State Street in Lockport. Hello, this is Paul from Nick and Ivy Brewing Company. We are located at 1026 South State Street in historic downtown Lockport, Illinois. We are very excited to be partnering up with the Fat Mike Chicago Sports Show as well as the 1252 brand because we are one of the few Chicagoland breweries that embrace sports and sports culture. Come in for a fresh brewed beer made right here in Lockport while catching the game of your favorite team. Stay for the live music that we have booked every weekend or just come for a cozy atmosphere to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, loved one, or complete stranger. Nick and Ivy makes you feel right at home no matter what the occasion is. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Nick and Ivy Brewing Company. Visit our website for our up-to-date tap list or to go shopping on our online store at nickivybrewing.com. That's N-I-K-I-V-Y brewing.com. Come in today for a fresh brewed beer born and raised in Lockport, Illinois. Unless uh, I was there uh, this past Sunday, we did a show with Mike and Angelo and Fred Hubner. We had a great time. The beer was flowing. I'm not the all-time personal connoisseur, but but Fred Hubner is a big connoisseur of beers, and he had two thumbs up, two thumbs up for all the different brews that he was able to drink at Nick and Ivy's. It's a wonderful place. I highly recommend if you're ever in the area. Good times will be had by all if you're in attendance. Anyway, let's let's continue on. I, a couple more topics before we get to our walk down memory lane segment and stump the grabber. Also, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, who's the, <laughs> and actually Mike asked this on Sunday when we were at Nick and Ivy's. He said, "Well, who's the biggest a hole that you've ever dealt with in sports?" And ironically, and you, and you mentioned him. For, for me, it was Keith Hernandez. You are 100% correct earlier. So I'll throw it at you. Who's the biggest a-hole you ever dealt with? Uh, somebody who also managed Keith Hernandez. And those two finally had a falling out. Whitey Herzog. What a complete and total. Uh, can I get a go real blue here? Sure. I think, Mike, I think Mike will say it's okay. Uh, he's a syphilis-infested penis. <laughs> You know, unless you probably use that line a thousand times, I think I laugh like a little kid every time. Mostly you say with it. regard to Whitey. What a complete jerk. And part of it is our business is electronic media. We're radio people. We have microphones. He hates microphones. He hate, He likes writers. Part of it is he wants people that are older and mostly the writers are of older age. But today there's a lot of young writers that are a lot younger than ours, but because they are, he calls it pencil press only. That's what he calls it. Another guy who was a real jerk, but uh, I, I'll put him uh, maybe a little bit uh, different from hers was uh, Gene Mock, the former Philly and Montreal Expo manager. He was a jerk too. 
Well, you know, back in the day, and you're talking about managers from the 60s and the 70s, maybe even early 80s, there was a different breed of baseball managers. Um, nowadays, managers have to uh, be like frontmen for the team. They have to be very PR conscious. They're the mouthpiece, you know, the conduit to the fans. Back in those days, you had so many, and there's so many other managers. I mean, Herman Franks, who was with the Cubs and the Giants, he was a real jerk off. Um, uh, um, uh, who, Pat, Pat Corrales was another real hard ass. There were so many bad John McNamara, and I'm not talking John about McNamara. the John, I'm talking about the guy who managed the uh, Boston Red Sox, among others. Uh, he was kind of uh, kind of a jerk too. Yeah, there there was a lot of bad managers. How about athlete though? What athlete really stood out? Again, Keith Hernandez, because I just had a really bad experience with him. But can you think of any? Uh, I never had in, a bad incident like you did with Hernandez. I was standing there right close by when. Uh, you stood up to uh, Keith Hernandez. You weren't going to let him put up with anything, but you tried to let things settle down. And he, he just, he kept coming at you. You walked away and he followed you. That's right. Uh, there have been some others as well. Barry Bonds. Here's a guy that most people couldn't stand. Most media people hated his guts. Now I got along with him for the following reason. I would talk to him about things other than the game that just had been completed or any potential records. I used to talk to him about his late dad, Bobby Bonds, who you and I both covered as well. And Bobby played with the White Sox less than a year and with the Cubs less than a year. But he was okay. I had no problem with him. And when he was in his prime with the Giants, and then later on he went to the uh, Yankees and whatnot, he was okay. And when I would talk to uh, Barry Bonds about his dad, the guy was like a prince. He was a sweetheart to talk about him. But when you wanted to talk to him about uh, the baseball game that had just been played, another guy who did not want to talk about the if, if, Mark McGuire, if uh, he hit a couple of home runs and he was zeroing in on Roger Maris's record, which he was the first and Sosa was the second to break in 1998, I would go to him and I go, that was a hell of a game, wasn't it? And then he would give me a great answer. He would talk about the game itself. He did not want to talk about that record. He did not want to talk about the home run chase that he had with Sammy. That's the difference between those two. Sammy Sosa, he loved what was going on. He uh, basically uh, was a great guy with regard to talking about it and was great with the fans. He was great with the reporters, great with everything else. But uh, Mark McGuire, he couldn't stand it. You know, Mike just asked us a question on our chat, uh, private chat thing here. He asked, and it's a great question, who's the better father-son combo? Is it Barry and Bobby Bonds, or is it Ken Griffey Jr. or Ken Griffey Sr.? And that's a really tough question to answer. Both of them. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, he did it the right way to the best of our knowledge. Uh, he was not a cheater. Barry Bonds, there's no question. Everybody knows what happened with regard to him. Um McGuire and Sosa had already broken Roger Maris's mark and they were getting all the pub. And supposedly Barry Bonds was PO'd because he was not getting all the credit or all the play that the others, and his attitude was he supposedly told friends, I'm better than them. I'm better than them no matter what's going on and I'm going to prove it. And that's how he got involved with the clear and the cream. And we know the rest is history. Yeah, you're 100% correct about that. You but, know, but I Junior, Junior, uh, for a while, he was not a great guy to interview, but he was always a gentleman. And later on in his career, he became a lot more talkative and uh, like a, always a gentleman. His dad, 
Ken Griffey Sr., always a terrific guy to deal with when he was at the Reds. It's a really good question again on Mike's part. I don't know if I have a, you know, I don't even know if I have an answer to the question. I will say this though. Ken Griffey Jr. is the best baseball player. I didn't see Willie Mays in his prime. Unfortunately, I only saw him at the very tail end of his career. Best player I ever saw was Willie Mays. Okay. And and so maybe you're you you have a better opinion on this, but Ken Griffey Jr. is the best baseball player. Talk about five tools: hit, hit for power, uh, have speed, can throw, and and can field. But and, didn't know how to avoid injuries going against that, that back wall that they had at the old Kingdom. Later on, he played when they moved into their new outdoor stadium. He got problems there too. But how many times did he crash into that wall in the Kingdom and hurt himself and have to go on the DL for a better part of a month? Yeah, actually, Alan has uh, uh, chimed in here. He says Sandy Alomar and Roberto Alomar, but that's not a father-son combination, right, Les? Well, they're, they're brothers. They're Sandy, brothers. we all know, pitched for a while. And then uh, Robbie Alomar ended up toward the end of his career with the White Sox. That's when Kenny Williams was picking up everybody toward the end of their right. career. <laughs> yeah, we became Cleveland West, if you will. Um, you know, all right, here's another question, because things just always pop into my head when we do these things. Who's the better pitching combination, brothers, Dizzy and Daffy Dean or Paul and Rick Russell? <laughs> I would say uh, uh, Phil and uh, Joe Necro. But uh, Phil oh, Necro, actually, yeah, you're right. who we just lost, and he was fantastic. Joe Necro was okay, but... He got into a little bit of trouble. He kind of cheated a little bit and got busted for putting crap on the ball. Yeah, he scuffed up the baseball, no question about that. And then here's another one from Alan. Cecil and Prince Fielder, you know, again, these are all good questions, and that is a Supposedly they were not on good terms. I guess towards the end they were talking to one another, but uh, Prince and Cecil for a long time, they were not talking to one another. That is absolutely correct. Uh, again, I'm just going to simply say Ken Griffey Jr. is the best baseball player, and there's been a lot of good ones, obviously. I mean, Frank Thomas is right there in the conversation. The best hitter I ever saw was Frank Thomas. Yeah, well, the best, best right-handed hitter uh, to me is Frank Thomas. Miguel Cabrera also right there also, but Ken Griffey Jr. could do so many things. I was more mesmerized by what Ken Griffey Jr. did on defense. Like you said, Les, he would climb the wall and, and just make incredible catch after catch in center field all over the place. All right, I'm going to ask one more we, uh, before we get to our walk down memory lane segment. And again, most of our podcast is walk down memory lane segment, but you know, we talked about the biggest a-holes. How about some of the Conversely, the antithesis, who are some of the nicest guys that we've ever dealt with in sports? I mean, this is unfortunately, well, no, I should say this. This list is a lot longer than the A-holes. I'm going to keep it local. Uh, let's go to the White Sox side first, and you're going to agree with me on this. Paul Canerco, is there anybody nicer than him to deal with? No. Jim Tony, who they got later on, equally great guy. Now, I'm going to shock some people with this because some people are not going to. I loved A.J. Pruszynski. I loved dealing with him, and I got along great with him, and a lot of people thought he was the biggest jerk on the planet. Actually, A.J., pretty good guy, and I enjoyed him. Now, on the Cubs side, I'm going to go back to the earlier days. One guy we've already talked about was Ron Santo, Billy Williams, and Ernie Banks. The big threesome, Williams, Santo, and Banks are amazing. Fergie Jenkins, and I don't know if you ever really knew him a little bit. I mean, he was back with the Cubs in 78. I know you were around at that point. Uh, and that was Kenny Holtzman. No, I, I unfortunately didn't have the pleasure of dealing with Kenny Holtzman, certainly as a player, or even after his career ended. But the nicest guy that I've dealt with that pops into my mind, and we talked about this on Sunday also at Nick and Ivy's in, in Lockport, um, 
is, uh, uh, and you mentioned his name earlier, unfortunately he's coming off a bad outing from Sunday night, but Kyle Hendricks is one of the nicest people I've ever dealt with. He would never turn me down for any uh, request I ever had of him for an interview, uh, to come on the air for at the score or any other place. Um, just a real sweetheart, Steve Kerr, another guy who was always my go-to guy. Great guy, guy Steve Kerr. And, you know, and, 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 and a lot of times I, I view these guys – you got to see them in adverse situations. Yeah, it's really easy to talk to the press after a win, but after a loss, then you really find out what somebody is all about. And Paul Canerco was that way also. He was the captain, and the captain is supposed to talk even after tough losses. Jonathan Taze, another perfect example, always stands up and talks to the media, even in time. Kane is good time. too. Pat Patrick Kane is also very good. Yes. Yeah. Patrick Kane, and that's another person we could talk about endlessly. Patrick Kane doesn't get as great as he is, and he's going to the Hall of Fame, obviously, and he still has great years still in front of him. I don't think he gets the due that he deserves. Patrick Kane has just been a constant um, offensive machine, and he's been paired up with so many different line mates over the years that I think it's almost unfair. I mean, you talk about some of the great players of all time, including Wayne Gretzky. Well, Gretzky always had Messier, you know, basically centering for him or Yari Curry on his on his other side or whatever. Paul you know, Coffey and everybody, they, they were loaded. But um, here's two others that I think get way more credit, and I'm not saying they don't deserve it, Ovechkin with Washington and Crosby with Pittsburgh. They're fantastic players. But I, I think Patrick Kane is every bit as good. And by the way, he's won more championships than Ovechkin, and he's won just about as many as Sidney Crosby. And for what little it's worth, and, you know, listen, I don't think they, they really care if you're an American, a Canadian, or a Czech uh, Republic or whatever. He is the best American-born hockey player, I think, ever. That's Patrick Kane. Well, no doubt. And uh, I'm going to mention somebody else that most people in the public never got to know. and. Uh, that was a certain Soviet goalie who was fantastic. The Americans, they knocked him out after the first period when he was taken out of that situation. And then he became a goaltender coach here in Chicago with the Blackhawks. Got to, he spoke no English back in the day, but by the time he was working with his English was perfect. A great, great guy and uh, got to know him a little bit and uh, he got to work. With, I mean, he, he helped Corey Crawford become the good goalie that he was. All right, you haven't said his name. You want to say his name, Tretiak? Vladislav Tretiak. And every time I would be leaving, I would go, Dospidania, and he would say the same thing back. Really, really nice guy. And I always talked to him. I said, if you would have played the Americans 30 more times after that one game, he goes, no question, we would have won every one of them. He says, Probably. that night, he said, that night they outplayed us. They deserved it. And he never declined to give the Americans credit for that. Uh, Miracle on ice situation. But again, their head coach made a big mistake yanking him out of there. Uh, if he'd have still been in goal, I don't know if the Americans would have won that goal, but they took him out. And it's funny because they Michigan, did. Michigan is backup goalie. It wasn't bad, but uh, the Americans got to him a couple of times. They got the tying goal and they got the winning goal. And that was something that uh, the only time I saw them play in person, David, that was in an exhibition. The last warm-up game that they played against the Soviets before the Olympics began, about a week before. It was at Madison Square Garden. If you saw the movie and everything else that game, they got beat something like 10 to 2. They That's got right. annihilated. And I walked out of Madison Square Garden 
with a guy that you and I both used to remember from uh, the sports phone days named Mike Farrell. I said, I can't believe what we just said. I said, people think they have a chance to win a medal. They won't get another, uh, they, they won't win another game. Duh, they didn't lose another game. They tied one game and won all the rest. Well, that's why Al Michaels and probably one of the most famous lines of all time in sports broadcasting history, do you believe in miracles? I mean, he couldn't have, I don't even know if he thought about that one in advance and if it just came off the tip of his tongue. It's one of the great lines in sports broadcasting history. He's also one of the great broadcasters in sports history. I remember when Al Michaels, he was the voice of the Cincinnati Reds before my, Marty Brenneman, but right. he took more money that was offered him to go out to San Francisco and work with the Giants before he became a national uh, guy. And then later on, uh, we know that uh, Marty Brenneman, who just is, is going into the Hall of Fame, and uh, I know Cub fans are still mad at him because he ripped Cub fans. I know Marty real well. I'm on first-name basis with the guy. And by the way, his son, Tommy, who worked for the Cubs for a while, too. I know both of these guys real well. And people say, boy, they both both be real jerks. No, they're not. They're both great guys, and Marty Brenneman, one of the nicest guys ever. But Al Michaels, he preceded my, Marty Brenneman with Cincinnati. 100% in everything you just said. All right, before we get to the Stump the Grabber um, segment at the end of the podcast, one more before that. And again, we've walked down memory lane segment most of this podcast already, but this is on a very special segment here where we talk about another memory, and it can be anything over all our years in broadcasting. You want to lead off and go first, Les? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things, but um, let me talk college basketball. I covered a lot of college basketball games. I also got to broadcast a lot. Uh, 18 years of doing UIC basketball and hockey. Eight years I got to do Northwestern. Unbelievable upsets that I will never forget that I got to broadcast. I was doing Northwestern against Michigan, and they had uh, two Hirsch High School alums, Ricky Green and John Robinson, who you knew about. They also had uh, Steve Grody, no relation to Mark Grody, of course. And uh, uh, we knew some other people that uh, were involved with it. They had Phil Hubbard. He was a great player with that team, too, the late Johnny Orr with their coach. The opener of the Big Ten schedule, which I was doing, Northwestern went to Chrysler Arena, and they got lit up by 37 points. And if it wasn't for the fact that uh, Johnny Orr called off the dogs, they would have been beat by 50 that day. Two weeks later, the rematch was in Evanston, and I figured, eh, hopefully they'll make it a little closer, but they're going to get their ass kicked again. We went to McGaw Hall. Billy McKinney, who to this day is a good friend, he's the mayor of Zion, Illinois, and he's one of the nicest guys you've ever run to. He was a great player. And Billy McKinney outplayed Ricky Green. He lit up Michigan. The Wildcats beat them by 13 points, and that was a great. The other time I did a game that was a big upset was when I was doing UIC, and they played Michigan State, and they had Steve Smith, who, as we all know, was a great NBA player, and UIC, uh, they had Tony Freeman. They had some other really good players, and they beat them. So those were big thrills and big upsets. And then, of course, we had the game that was played in Rosemont. You might have been there that day. That was that game between Illinois and Arizona for the right to go to the final four and the fighting Illini, they were dead. I was sitting next to Kenny McReynolds and when they fell behind by about 12 or 13 points with about four minutes, I said, they're done. It's over. He goes, I agree. And all of a sudden Luther head and so many others just started hitting everything in sight. And the Illini come back and won the game. Then they got all the way into the championship game against North Carolina. And I know North Carolina fans don't want to hear this, but, uh, Illinois got screwed royally by the officials in that game. 
you that, were Illinois, there. that Illinois Arizona game uh, is probably the most exciting, certainly last four minutes of a game that I'll ever remember because everybody was, you know, putting their stories, you know, they're on deadline. And then all of a sudden the game just turned around in those last four minutes and people were scrambling to change their stories or whatever they had to do. You're right about Billy McKinney, one of the nicest guys ever. And, 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 and Ricky Green from Hirsch High School is the fastest guard I've ever seen with a basketball dribbling up the court. He could dribble a ball up the court faster than somebody could run without even dribbling the ball. That's I used to describe him as a bullet out of a shotgun. Yeah, he, he was really incredible. All right, my walk down memory lane segment. And you were probably, I don't know if you were walking side by side with me, but you've certainly been to a lot of the Bears Raiders games out in Oakland when they played out there at the old Oakland Alameda County Stadium. And to go to those games, and I would always go three, four hours in advance, and I would have to walk through the tailgate uh, people going into the stadium. And, you know, they're, they're, the tailgaters in general are sort of a weird breed because they're drinking and they're drunk and they're making their barbecues at eight or nine in the morning, yada, yada, yada. So that's a breed unto itself. But at Oakland, it was the scariest thing I've ever think I've ever it was like being in the middle of the movie Rocky Horror Picture Show only in real life. Yeah, I mean, I equated it. It was a combination of walking through a prison yard and also the uh, the bar scene in the first Star Wars movie where you like, what are these people? I mean, the women oh were scary. The women were scarier than the men, and some of them were a lot bigger and stronger than some of the men, too. I mean, honestly, it was like it was like a Hell's Angels convention going through that. Walking in, I went to Raiders games out in Oakland, and each and every time, I sort of almost, I almost wanted an escort. I was sort of nervous walking through that crowd to go into the stadium. They played a preseason game every year, but they only played regular season every four years, of course. And I know you and I have a lot of friends that are in the Bay Area media out there. And when the real game was played between the Niners and the Raiders, not at Candlestick, but in Oakland, uh, the 49er fans out there, uh, they, they were scared to death. Some of them, some of them, they couldn't wait to let loose on uh, uh, the, the, the Raider fans going back and forth. And it was, it was pretty ugly stuff. Okay. All right. We're going to get to our final segment now and appreciate everybody tuning in. And, and we'll be back with a live broadcast coming up on Sunday night, probably like around 830, give or take. Anyway, um, when we do the live broadcast, I'll have some questions um, ready to go less, but our listeners will try and stump you as well if you're okay with that. And who knows, maybe down the road, if we get really successful, maybe we'll, we might, underline might have some prizes for people who are able to stump you. But for right now, I'm going to throw some questions at you. And the first one is, and you remember the day, September 30th, 2008, and I guess it was called Cellular One uh, Field at that point. It's the blackout game against Minnesota. Okay? You remember that. I, Absolutely. I'm, I'm pretty confident you're going to get all these. Who's the winning pitcher? Who, who accounted for the only run? Who got the save? Well, I know the White Sox, one thing I definitely remember, they had to win three games in three days against three different teams. They That's had right. to win a game with, uh, uh, actually, that was played with Cleveland the last game of the regular season. If they lose that, it was over. They won. Detroit had to then fly into Chicago, and Freddie Garcia, the former White Sox pitcher, He's pitching a gem for that uh, team against the White Sox. And all of a sudden, 
he comes up with a serious injury late in that game and goes out in their bullpen, blew the thing. And we know that Ozzie Guillen and Freddie Garcia were the best of friends to this day. And Ozzie always calls him my best friend on the planet. And people wonder if that was a fake injury that uh, maybe Ozzie got to him and said, we have to win this game. You got to come out of here. So, I, you know, it sounds preposterous, but all of a sudden he was out of there. Uh, and uh, then we all know the Twins game. The Twins game, they won that game one to nothing. One to nothing. And, and, and I love how you give stories to try and avoid answering the question, by the way. How did they score the one run? Who was the winning pitcher? Who got the save? A home run that was hit uh, to left field. And by that time, uh, I'm trying to remember, I'm thinking, uh, I think that was Jim Tomey. It was Jim Tomey. Who got the win? Well, in that game, uh, trying to remember, uh, it was a guy that they got in a trade with Philadelphia. And so I am going to guess that, uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, it was a starting pitcher they, they got from the Phillies. You're shaking your head no. Well, it's a starting pitcher, yes. Who was it? It's John Danks. John Danks. That's right. He, he was another guy that had been pitching pretty well late in the year, and they went with him uh, late in the season. It was but, probably the yeah. best game he pitched in a White Sox uniform. And then who got the save? Uh, at the save at that point, uh, it wasn't Bobby Jenks at that it point. It was Bobby Jenks. Danks and Jenks. Win and save. Absolutely. By the way, he had a namesake with slightly different spelling on the 63 Bears that won the championship. Their place kicker that year was Bob Jenks, spelled with a C, differently than uh, the pitcher Bobby Jenks. But uh, no relation, relation, just so you know. And who says you don't learn anything from podcasts? All right, uh, the next question. Who holds the Blackhawks' single-game record for scoring five goals in a game? Well, that was uh, uh, done a long time ago, but uh, it was a guy who used to play first base for their softball team, and we played them all the time. And uh, darn, I'm having a little uh, brain cramp. I know who it is. Um, The guy had an unbelievable slap shot, scored a lot of goals, and was one of the best interviews on the team at that point. Slow Slow as molasses skating up and down the ice like a piano was on his back, Grant Mulvey. It was Granny. And, uh, Still see him occasionally at Blackhawk games. We haven't this year, but uh, we'll see him again in the future. All right. The last question. You will not know this one, but I came across this one. It's so off the wall. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. All right. In 2018, this is a NASCAR race question. I definitely don't know the answer to that. I know. No no one's going to know this one. It's just so off the wall. I I just looked it up the other day. 2018 Subway, which was a sponsor for NASCAR, um, they canceled their uh, sponsorship with one of their drivers, and his name was Daniel Suarez, because he was passing out things to um, uh, uh, the fans before and during, or not not during a race, but fans before and I guess after races. What was he passing out to the fans that Subway canceled the sponsorship with this guy? I'm guessing they were, it was probably a racist type of thing. No. No, it wasn't, huh? Then you got me on that one. This is so off the wall. I, I had to look this one up. Subway canceled his sponsorship with his race car driver, Daniel Suarez, because he was passing out Dunkin' Donuts to fans. And Dunkin' Donuts was a rival to Subway because Subway, I apparently, I didn't even know this. I, I guess they had breakfast materials. And so they considered it like 
uh, breaking the contract or something like that. So he was passing out Dunkin' Donuts and they canceled his sponsorship. How weird is that? The only thing I know about that is Kathy, when she was a kid, long before I knew her, she used to work at a Dunkin' Donut shop. So that's about the only, uh, but if it's NASCAR uh, or if it's IndyCar racing, I'm not a gigantic expert at that. I do know that uh, on the way from uh, the Atlantic Ocean where we were and we were driving to Orlando to fly back to Chicago, Kathy and I stopped at Daytona International Speedway and she wanted to check the souvenir shop. Those people there were really, really nice. They couldn't have been better. And we had a really great time going in there. But have I ever been to a race there? No. I've been in the Indy Motor Speedway as well at a Super Bowl that was held in Indianapolis. Uh, the second time that the uh, Giants beat the Patriots at that uh, facility uh, in Indianapolis at Lucas Oil Stadium. But uh, I know this much that uh, uh, a lot of nice folks you run into there, but I've never gone to a race. I, you know, I've been to some races and they're okay. I mean, I went to Demolition Derby when, when I was when I was a kid up in Wisconsin. I don't even remember where it was. That was pretty interesting. Um, and I've been to races. I don't really get off on watching people drive around an oval track. However, I do like driving very fast. But I, you know, I don't have anything on you because you drive fast even going down alleys in Chicago. You're crazy, Les. I used to drive uh, bumpum cars at Riverview. Who did? Yeah, well, yeah, we had a ball doing that, but I used to go after people. I said, and they, they said, uh, oh, be careful, you're going to clobber us. And I go, you're right. And I would ram into people. By the way, Alan, Alan Bratcher, he, I think he knew the answer to that question. He wrote down donuts here. Alan, if you knew that, man, you deserve a prize. You deserve a donut for knowing that one, Alan. Congratulations to you. Anyway, Les, it's been fun as always. I hope we entertained, we inform. We certainly walk down memory lane segment more often than not through our entire podcast. And we'll do it again. We're going to start doing these live on Sunday night upcoming, roughly about 830, give or take on Sunday night. So I look forward to that lesson. Until then, you have yourself a great week. We'll look forward to it and uh, have a good week, everybody. All right, take care.